My next guest is the Curator of Photography at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Please welcome Malcolm Daniel. Malcolm, how's it going? It's okay. Glad to be here. Hey, good, good. Well, hey, thank you. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. My pleasure. All right. So let's jump right into it. What do you do? <laughs> I'm uh, the curator of photographs at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Houston. So uh, I've been here almost seven years now. I was a curator first at the Metropolitan Museum in New York and worked with a photography collection there and ran that department for about nine years and then uh, moved here. And it's a pretty exciting time to be at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. We're about to open a new building, uh, which will have art from 1900 to the present for the most part. And for the first time, photography galleries. So we're excited about that. Nice, all right. And now, can you talk about what a curator does, especially a curator of photographs? Sure. The curators are really responsible for the building the collection of art and for caring for it and for presenting it to the public. And I think like so many professions, it takes a village. So nothing that we do is done completely in isolation all by ourselves. It's always working with lots of other people. And even in the Department of Photography, we have a great team that works together. But the curators' duties fall into a couple major areas. One has to do with our acquisitions, the, the works of art that we bring into the collection, either by purchase from artists or from dealers or at auction, or gifts that we accept from collectors. So we're always, of course, trying to cultivate and educate people who have uh, the, the same sort of shared interests. So we have a committee, a photography committee at the museum made up largely of people who are collectors themselves and who support our acquisitions, sometimes making gifts to the museum, sometimes contributing funds to help us buy works of art at, at, at auction, at art fairs or from mm -hmm. artists and such. So um, that's the... That's the, um, it's one of the most fun parts of the job, I think, is to, <laughs> to try to understand what's in the collection already and how we, how we can tell a fuller story about the history of photography, history of art. And photography is interesting because it has such a wide embrace. You know, you think about oil paintings. Well, nobody ever made an oil painting who wasn't trying to make art. Right. But photographs, I mean, there are millions upon millions upon millions that are made every, every day now. And even in the past, there are many photographs that were made as art in some cases, but some, in some cases they were made uh, for science or for industry or just to record the image of a loved one or to document a certain event. And sometimes those photographs that weren't made as works of art still touch us in the way that we want art to touch us, right. to move our, our emotions, to tell us about history, to just be something that's incredibly beautiful. There are many different ways into art, um, into photography. And so the challenge is that there's so much, <laughs> there's so much. And even in terms of the museum's collection, about half of the objects in the museum's collection are photographs. Mm. There are something like 35,000 photographs in the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Um, I've been here seven years. I haven't seen all those. <laughs> you know, we, we have a database. We have images of, of most of them. But I can't hold 35,000 right. images in my head. So it's always a question about um, learning what's in the collection. And that's been fun for me. Uh, to come to a new collection and to see what my predecessor, Ann Tucker, built over the course of almost 40 years. When she came in 1975 or 1976, I think there were 150 photographs. Wow. And when she retired, there were 30,000. Oh, so wow. 
she probably had all of those in her head, but I haven't got them all in my head yet. But she and I have had uh, have uh, different passions and different areas of expertise. And so for me, it's been fun to learn about new parts of the history of photography and also to be able to build the collection in areas where Anne was not as excited or as knowledgeable about a particular aspect of the medium's history as, as I am. Can and, we talk about how you, how you got into photography? When was that and how did you get into sure, it? Sure, sure. I, I was always interested in art. As a kid, I took art classes at the museum. I, I grew up in Baltimore, so I took mm. art classes at the Baltimore Museum of Art, just mm -hmm. like here in Houston there. There's the junior school at Glossel, and, and kids come in to have that firsthand experience with art. And when I went to college, I studied both studio art, a lot of printmaking, um, and art history. Mm. And the more great art I saw, the more humble I became about my own art and my own uh, supposed talents. And so gradually, I just became more and more excited about, about art history. Mm. And when I finished college, I... I went back to Baltimore and I worked at the Baltimore Museum of Art in the education department and ran the school tour program. And I learned a lot actually from the, the volunteer docents who gave the tours. Many of them had been teachers. They had a great deal of knowledge about the museum's collection there, but also they knew how to speak to fourth graders in a way that would get kids excited about what they were seeing. Um, so I learned a lot from them. And I did that for about five years, and then I missed the academic world and really wanted to go back to grad school and eventually, you know, sort of train to become a curator. So I, I did. I ended up going to Princeton for my doctorate, and um, I didn't go to Princeton to study the history of photography. Um, I was interested in 19th century French painting. I was working with a certain professor who ended up moving to another school. Um, and I had had a great experience taking a seminar with a professor named Peter Bonnell about the history of photography. And I ended up deciding to go in that direction because it seemed like virgin territory. Mm. You know, if you are interested in 19th century French art, generally, say painting, you can spend years reading what's already been written. And when it comes time to write your doctoral dissertation, you know, you can either work on somebody who's like a third rate painter and do the original research, or you spend years reading what everybody else has already written about Manet or Monet or Degas. And then if you're smarter than everybody else from the last hundred years, maybe you can add some tidbit of knowledge there. <laughs> um, but in photography, there were artists of the absolute first rank about whom almost nothing was written. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up combining this interest I had in, in, in the past with the excitement that I had felt in this history of photography um, seminar. And I ended up specializing in 19th century photography and the beginnings of the medium, which was invented and announced to the public in 1839. So that's what we think of as the beginning of photography. And I wrote specifically about a French photographer of landscape and architecture um, and civil engineering projects, uh, a man named Aldous. And it was exciting for me because he was a major figure, but there was very little written about him. So I had the chance to, to do that original research, to figure out about his life and to bring some kind of order to our understanding of his art. And when I was working on that dissertation, I, I had a fellowship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art mm. and then went off and did a year of research in Paris, which isn't the worst thing in the world to have to do. <laughs> right. Uh, and then uh, came back and I ended up being hired at the Met to, as a curatorial assistant, the sort mm. of, you know, doing the, sort of helping with some of the grunt work for the curator of photography there, Maria Morris Hamburg, who was a Houstonian actually. And I had the opportunity a few years later to do an exhibition at the Met of the work of this photographer who I'd written about in my dissertation. Oh. Um, and so for me, that was uh, what was so exciting about it, you know, besides, you know, being able to sort of publish a, a book was um, to see other people, to see our public having that same sense of discovery and that same excitement that I felt as a, as a researcher, as a curator, to see people coming into the museum 
and discovering an artist for the first time, mm. not seeing their favorite paintings that they already know by Manet or Monet or Degas or whoever, but seeing an artist that they never heard of, they, they didn't recognize the name at all and saying like, how come I never heard of this person? Mm. I didn't know that they could do this, you know, in the 19th century. I didn't know they could make pictures like these. Are these the originals they're asking? So that was, that's exciting. And it's still what is exciting for me. The reason we build the collection is to share it with the public. So um, that, and so, yeah. And so that's interesting. So, so that part there, how do you convey that to the public? So you, you, you want to be able to have this collection and kind of educate the public on it correctly. So, so one, I guess, how do, you, how do you do that with these paintings and what all goes into it? I'm sure like there's lighting, there's where you're putting yeah. it and all that. So can you just talk about what all goes into it? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, that's really the second major aspect of what a curator does. Part mm. of it is building the collection and then part of it is sharing the collection. Right. Um, so organizing exhibitions and installations. And you're right that there's a lot that goes into it first of all, coming up with the overarching idea for a show, right. um, selecting the works that are going to best communicate that and show photography at its, at the, at its high points. Mm -hmm. But then lots of things that probably aren't top of people's mind when they look at a show, but, but go into a, a little bit of the theater of an exhibition. In other words, yeah, the pictures are matted and framed, but what color mat goes around something? You know, what and it might be a white mat, but there are 50 shades of white. And so which one just brings out the complexion of the photograph in the best way? And what kind of frame sets it off um, in a way that feels historically appropriate and, um, and aesthetically beneficial to the picture? How do we space them on the walls? What kind of rhythm is there? How do we keep it from just looking like laundry hanging on a, a line? What color should those walls be? How should they be lit? Um, and part of that has to do with conservation concerns because photography remains light sensitive. But part of it is aesthetic too. How do we, how do we show them off to best advantage? And then what do we say about them? What's written on those labels besides the artist's name and the title and the date? How do we help people learn about it, but also discover things for their on their own? So the ideal label gives you some insight but makes you want to go back and look at the picture yeah. again when you finish reading the label Ooh, there's some detail i didn't notice let me look for that mm. um, and i think even in the sort of simplest kinds of exhibitions we're very conscious of how the works are presented and and who our audience is so one of the things that i did when i came to houston was to institute a series of installations that are just called a history of photography not the history of photography, but a history of photography, because there's so many different ways to tell that story. And we commandeered a wall in the museum's Beck building. It was a long sort of hallway that wasn't being used. And he said, like, I want that space. <laughs> and we were able to put up about 25 pictures at a time <laughs> that would go from a daguerreotype, the sort of earliest kind of photographs, right to the present day, <laughs> until a story there and show the breadth of the museum's collection, different artists of different nationalities, um, different subjects, different processes, photographic processes. Um, and we've taken turns at doing that installation. So I did the first couple because I wanted, it was a way to sort of force me to learn, begin to learn the collection better. Sure. Um, but then um, the associate curator did one and then the curatorial assistant did one and then I did another. And it's interesting because each of us looked at the collection differently, looked for different things, found different things, and maybe had a different viewpoint. So the associate curator at the time was a Japanese man and his installation was much more international than mine was. Mine was sort of you know, American, French and English and some, you know, a little Japanese and German when we get to the sort of post-war period. Mm. His was much more international. The curatorial assistant at the time was a woman, and she was much more conscious about making sure that women were represented throughout the, the full history as we presented it. Right. Um, and so then when it came to be my turn again in the rotation, 
I was more conscious about those things. I was asking myself, you know, how many women are represented here? How many different nationalities? So there are just so many different ways to tell the story. And that's part of the benefit of having such a large and varied collection that spans the history and is international. So that's interesting. Just all that goes into your collection and the pieces that you're putting in your collection. I mean, you're 35,000 pieces. Uh, can, you, <laughs> can you talk about what goes into the research and collecting of these pieces? And I know you touched on a little bit of, you get them from gifts, from loans, from purchases, you know, acquisitions, but, but kind of touch on how that research works and how you go about uh, collecting these. Sure. So um, to a certain extent, our collecting has to be opportunistic. And by that, I mean, you know, if you said, okay, in the next year, I'm only going to acquire this type of photography. Well, it may be that that type of photography, whatever it is, you know, doesn't sort of come to market at that moment. If you said, we're really weak in turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, sort of art photography, the beginning years of the 1900s. Uh, and so really want to build that area. Well, the best things might not come up in the next year. So instead, we know what our strengths and weaknesses are in the collection, and we keep our eyes open. And it, it might be that something comes up this year, which is unexpected, and you, you try to acquire that. I, I think we do have certain priorities in mind. In the last two years, really, we've made a real effort to expand our representation of the history of African-American life and experience. So we've already had from Ann Tucker's work, a very strong collection by and about African-Americans, um, but largely focused on the second half of the 20th century and up to the present. So civil rights movement and, and beyond. But we had virtually nothing. Um, I have to think about that. I may be able to say nothing or virtually nothing <laughs> uh, that dated to the period of um, slavery and civil war and abolition and re reconstruction. And so thanks to the uh, a really generous contribution from one of our supporters, we were able two years ago to acquire an incredibly rare and very moving photograph taken in Cincinnati in the 1860s by an African-American photographer, J.P. Ball. And it shows a group of former slaves who have travel the Underground Railroad towards freedom, and they are posed in a group with a man named Levi Coffin, who was an, a Quaker abolitionist and who's credited with sort of helping to escort 3,000 people towards freedom over the course of 30 years. And this photograph is just incredibly beautiful. The, the expressions and the gestures and the way people lean into one another, there's this sense of of family. We don't know if it's all one family or right. what, what, but there's a kind of connectedness there. And they all have sort of new clothes and Bibles in their hands. And it's just an amazing piece of the story. Mm. And so that was a great acquisition. And then we've been collecting what were called carte de visite, literally visiting cards, not because they were visiting cards, but because they were the size of a visiting card, sort of two and a half by three and a half inches photographs of African-Americans that were sold as part of the cause of abolition to raise money for the education of former slaves and to create awareness of the cause of abolition. We've been doing that. And then most recently, an incredible photograph, again, very small, but an amazing photograph of a family, Harry and Eliza Stevens and their five children. It's taken in 1866. It's taken outside. And again, it's this sort of indivisible family unit where the kids are on the lap of the mother and sort of they hold hands and, and there's this sense of pride and they've come through the Civil War and through the period of slavery a whole. So many families were broken up, dispersed, uh, relatives lost from, you know, children sold from their mothers, that kind of thing. This family survived all that whole. And the thing that's sort of the kicker is that they were um, slaves on the plantation owned by the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Hamilton Stevens. Um, so it's just incredibly moving to me. And at the right side of this little picture is another man standing there with a U.S. flag. And I just think 
it like gives me chills to look <laughs> at it and to think about it because it's a, this it's a piece of that story of the journey mm -hmm. so that for instance is is one priority that we've had in mind over the past couple years but there are all sorts of of sort of focus areas in the collection that we try to keep building okay all right so you, you see what areas you need to build upon and you go out and do the research and try to to get those pieces yeah. now now and sometimes okay. it's sometimes it's filling a gap and right. sometimes it's also building on strength. So okay. Ann Tucker spent 10 years working on a show about war photography. And so we have an incredible collection of war photographs. Mm. And so sometimes things come along that add to that. And we, we think instead of saying, we've already got enough, we don't need any more pictures of war. We say anybody who's interested in war-related photography or conflict-related photography is going to come to Houston, to our collection, because we're the place that has specialized in that. And so we want to add this other picture that does something new, tells a different part of the story, and sort of build on that strength. So it's, it's yeah. both sides, sometimes looking at our weaknesses, sometimes at our strengths. Okay. A couple of questions with that. Is that mostly you and a committee that's working on this? And that's also want to ask, yeah. Well, I can ask the other question later. Okay, and that's a great question. So um, the, our, our department has a team. There's uh, myself as curator. There's an associate curator, Lisa Volpe, who is terrific and has a greater knowledge about 20th century photography than I have. My specialty is the 19th century. And then we're both interested in contemporary photography, contemporary artists making work right now. There's a curatorial assistant who helps us with the logistics of everything we do, but also has her own area of expertise and is a contributor and, and has helped us curate some of the installations and exhibitions. There's a cataloger, there's a collections manager who cares for the collection and who also makes it accessible to students and researchers and visitors in our study room. And there's a matting and framing technician who does all the preparation of the work so that it can go on the walls. So we have a, a big team and a great team and people whose opinions I really uh, value. And then we have a kind of photography committee that is made up of our supporters, many of whom have many, many years of experience looking at and collecting photography and who are generous contributors to the department to help us build the collection. And then there's also a kind of patron group or friends group called Photo Forum which has dues, pretty modest dues, beginning at like $300 for a young member or $500 for a, a couple. Um, and that we do a series of programs throughout the year to help build enthusiasm and knowledge about the medium. And our final event each year is vote night, where we present possible acquisitions to be purchased with the dues money that they've contributed. And they all get to vote on what works come into the collection. So that's always fun because everybody cool. gets to have the, the exercise of being the curator, thinking about, okay, if I have X amount of money, what are my priorities? And what is it that I like the most? What is it that is most appropriate for the collection? What will the public like most? Mm -hmm. What's the rarest? You know, what balance all those different factors? Yeah, that's great. That's great getting the public involved. Now, I want to ask you this, is working with the trustees, is that a big part of what you do as well? Uh, working with the trustees and with our, specifically with our photography committee, we really try to make the experience for them one that is valuable to them in terms of that, that they're learning from it. We have meetings four times a year and actually a couple of the, the members always say like, I love it. I wish they could go on instead of being two hours. I wish they could be five hours long. I feel like I've gone to graduate school. I learned so much listening to you all. So it's meant to be a, an experience that is beneficial to them, that helps them build their own collections in ways that reinforce the interests that we have. And one of the nice things is that a lot of the people on our committee have become real friends. It's not like, oh, you know, I'm doing fundraising and I have to ask these people to help us buy something. And uh, it actually is like we're coming together as people who share a passion for, for photography or for certain aspects of photography. We enjoy each other's company. We learn from one another. Um, they're interested in supporting what we do. So we have great trustees for the museum as a whole. And we have great trustees and other members, other supporters on our photography committee. 
Okay. All right. And then you mentioned 19th century French art. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It seems like a passion of yours. If so, can you talk about why that is and what other passions do you have or interests do you have? Sure. So for me, what's really exciting about the beginnings of photography, maybe the first 25 years, is that photography, it was still a handcrafted medium and it was still people trying to figure out what, what it could do. So now, you know, we can look back almost you know, 200 years, 180 years, we can look back on the history of photography, thousands, millions of pictures having been made. We see what people have done. Now we're, of course, everything is digital. We're snapping our our iPhones. Um, But, you know, even say 20 years ago, you would go to the store, you'd buy your chemicals, you'd buy your photographic paper, things like that. But at the very beginnings of photography, it was still handcrafted. You mixed your own chemicals, you coated your own papers, and it was more like cuisine than science. So there were treatises about how to make a photograph, but I think about it almost like a cookbook. So, you know, the cookbook gives you the basic directions and then it gets to the part which always frustrates me, which says like season to taste, cook until done or something like that. Right. Right. And so photography was that way too. And when you read the journals from the period, they'll say, I find that on a warm day, two extra drops of such and such or a dash of this makes my print look more purple. Um, And so each photographer's work had a kind of individuality. It wasn't, the medium wasn't industrialized yet. So just from the sense of the sort of physical sense of what the picture looks like, um, it's really important for the 19th century to see the original. It's different than looking at a picture on, the, on your computer screen or thinking about 20th century black and white photography. There was a variation to the papers, but in the beginning, there was this real, I don't know, an individuality and you want to see, you want to sort of feel with your eyes, feel the surface of the paper. Yeah. Um, and there were, you know, the very earliest photographs were daguerreotypes invented by a man named Daguerre. And they were, and you may have seen these photographic images on a highly polished silver plated sheet of copper and so at a certain angle it just looks like a mirror you just see yourself and then when the light hits it right it snaps into into view almost like a hologram it has an incredible presence so there's a a a physical aspect to the object of the photograph that's different than just the image and then also those early photographers were trying to figure out what photography could do aesthetically and a lot of the early photographers were trained as painters and they were trying to see could this new medium make a landscape that would have some of the qualities of a painted landscape, but do something different? What can the medium do? It's pretty hard now to make a new photograph in a way, you know, I mean, there might be a new subject, but it's, it's hard. But at that time it was all virgin territory, right? It was all to be explored. People traveled the world. Photographers traveled the world with all of their equipment and glass plates and bottles of chemicals and a dark room, a tent that could serve as a dark room. And, you know, there was a a lot that went into it, but they would come back to London or to Paris or to New York with pictures of places that people had never seen. So it was a kind of amazing experience. I mean, it's hard for us now to imagine what it was like to see a photograph for the first time. Right. You know, how many photographs have you seen today? (laughs) You know, just today. Um, And, uh, I think that there was a kind of magic to it all that um, was unlike any previous art form. Yeah, no, and it definitely makes sense that you said many of those photographers back then were artists beforehand. I never even thought about that, but yeah, it makes sense. And I love love seeing your passion about it. It's, It's great, it's great. There's a joke in our office, which is sometimes we do a kind of show and tell for say a class that's coming in and we'll we'll bring out um you know a line of photographs that go from 1840 to 2020 Mm. um and um i'll start talking and and the the joke is that about 50 minutes into the hour-long class i say like and then in 1852 (laughs) (laughs) Because I, I am excited about those early years. That's um, your interest, and, yeah. and, and great and great photographs that were made then, and that's uh, part of the fun of the job is sharing all of that uh, with our public. Yeah, no, definitely sharing it, educating us. So that's great. So, can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like? 
Sure. Probably like many jobs, a fair amount of my day is taken up looking at email and <laughs> going to meetings and things like that. But the fun parts of it, like today I'm writing labels for the works that are going to go into our new building that opens later this fall. And so thinking about our audience and what's important to convey about each, each of the photographs. Um, so I uh, was writing about actually some photographs that will go into the new American galleries at the museum. We've just made an acquisition of some 19th century photographs of Native Americans and specifically sort of the delegations that came to negotiate treaties uh, with the U.S. government in, in Washington. And when they were in Washington, they were often photographed by one of the local photographers there. And so for me, I know that our history, our treatment of Native Americans is shameful, but I have to say, you know, when I go and like look at the specifics of this delegation and why they came to Washington and what they had gone through. The details are just mind-bogglingly mm. horrible. Um, and so I'm thinking, well, how do I, how do I in a hundred words convey something about the history, why the photograph was made, who these people were, what their history was, something about the picture itself, um, how it relates to other things that it will be shown with. And so that little bit of research and trying to craft the message and make sense of it myself, that's one of the things that I'm doing. And then also working um, on another show, that one put together by many departments in the museum, but there's a section of photography and I'm working on the computer just to lay out how those pictures will be arranged how they go on the wall, what makes sense in terms of order, what will fit, because like uh, many people, our appetite is always bigger than, you know, when I was a kid, we'd go to a cafeteria or something and <laughs> I wouldn't finish what I got. And my mom would say, you know, your eyes were bigger than your stomach. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how it is. We always want to put in more pictures than actually fit on the <laughs> wall. So how do I edit that down? What are the most important ones? What's the arrangement? Leave some room on the wall to breathe. Um, that sort of empty space is important also. Right. So trying to lay that out. Earlier in the day, I was speaking with uh, Lisa Volpe, the associate curator, about potential acquisition of contemporary African photographer. So all of those different aspects of what I mentioned that a curator does throughout the course of the day, there are a lot of those sort of bit by bit happen. Sometimes we need to block off a chunk of time and stay home and we're writing a catalog and that's really what we focus on. But right. a typical day might have aspects of, of different activities, yeah. Okay. Now, now the writing the labels, just a quick question about that. Mm -hmm. If you have the same photograph, you know you worked in New York and, and you worked here, would you have a different label for that photograph versus if it was in New York versus here? That's such, such a great question because it was a question that we discussed earlier today. Oh, really? I had written, yeah, because I had written, I had written a label for, for this turn of the century photograph at the Met and we were showing an example here and I was saying to Lisa, does it bother you if I end up saying the same thing and it's on the Mets website, but it's, but, but I wrote it on the Mets website, you know, and when you have figured out how in a hundred words to get at the meat of something, it's hard to say like, okay, now I want a hundred different words, but also to get at the meat of it. Um, nonetheless, I tried to do something different. And here in this case, it was a label that was going to be in the American galleries rather than in photography galleries. And so I got rid of certain things that certain words, like there's a move, movement of photography at the turn of the century or 1900s, art photography was often called pictorialism. And rather than use the term pictorialism and explain what it means, I just sort of got rid of that from the label. We didn't need to. That wasn't, wasn't necessary for that context. And then I would say too that there are times when I might write essentially the same label, but there are times when I write something very different because um, at the Met, a third of our audience were international tourists, a third were tourists from around the country, and a third were people in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, sort of tri-state area. Here, because Houston isn't the same tourist destination, 90% of our visitors are people who live here and hopefully come back to the museum multiple times. And so, um, and I'm also conscious of the fact that very little 19th century photography has been shown here. So I, I start at a, at a different beginning point. 
I don't know. I'm, I just try to be conscious of what knowledge a visitor might come with and what things might be of interest to that, to that visitor. Uh, no, makes sense. Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just a great question because it was literally <laughs> something that we, I was grappling with earlier in the day. <laughs> well, no, it's just interesting all that goes into all the different aspects of the collections. So even from just the labels, the labels, the lighting, everything. So. Right. And of course, for the labels, there's also an editor who makes sure we've put the commas in the right place, but also that we're being clear that we're not using terms that we understand as specialists in photography, but mm. that might be obscure for the, for the public. So the editor is looking at our prose, making sure it's clear, making sure that it's grammatically correct. Um, and then there's the designer who's figuring out the the specs for the type, what gets bold, what gets italics, who's laying it out and then producing the physical label to get on the wall. So yeah. even something as simple as a, a label will have multiple people involved in it. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the great pleasures of working at a museum is that there are people who have expertise that I don't have, that right. um, I know things that they don't, but we have great designers and graphic designers. Uh, we have specialists in lighting there are conservators who not only um, the conservators ha have the responsibility of making sure that works are are safe safely housed safely stored safely exhibited and who also do work on the photographs when needed if there's a tear that needs to be repaired or something mm -hmm. like that and they also do analysis so they have high-tech equipment that they can look at a photograph and say, oh, it's not a gelatin silver print, it's a platinum print. They mm. can analyze the materials that are making it. And then that might help us understand something about the dating of the picture. Oh, if it's this kind of print, it's probably a little later than I thought it was or earlier. Yeah. Um, so there are people who have amazing knowledge and it's part of what's fun about being there. And the other thing that I've always enjoyed in working in museums is just the environment that we're in. So there are people who do things that they could do elsewhere. You know, you could be an accountant or an editor or a shop cashier mm -hmm. at many different places. But those people come to the museum and stay at the museum because every day they walk into those buildings and they go like, wow, look at what's here. You know, you walk past sculptures that are 2000 years old or incredible paintings from China from hundreds of years ago or African art or photographs or old master paintings, whatever it is. And so the environment that you're in day after day, even if you're not as directly connected to the art as the curator or the conservator might be, there's still that environment that you're in, mission that you're a part of. Yeah, yeah. Now, based on your conversation, you know, you could tell you have to have a love of photography, love of research, your communication skills, managerial skills based on all the people that you're working with, love to teach. What, what type of skills and characteristics would you say are important to be successful in your line of business? Well, that whole list that you just said um, <laughs> is, 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 it gets at the heart of it. I do think that communication, and I, I think this is probably true whether you're a doctor or an astronaut or a chef or whatever. Mm. I, I think that communication is important and we need to be able to speak with our trustees. We need to be able to speak with fellow curators. We need to be able to speak with artists. We need to be able to speak with an elementary school class or group of graduate students, that communication is important in both directions. We need to be able to learn from people and elicit information for ourselves, but we need to be able to communicate it also to share what we love about the work yep. um, with other people. So I think that's, that's at the heart of it. But there's also, as in any area, there's specialized skills that we need. I mean, nowadays, it's hard to become a curator in a museum if you haven't gone to grad school and gotten your PhD in art history, right. that there's a level of, there's an expectation of a, a, a level of research capability, writing mm -hmm. capacity, broad knowledge, a kind of visual literacy. So there's obviously that specialized knowledge that's, that's required as there is in any profession. Right. But I think if you're going to be successful, I think that communication is really important. Okay. And now you mentioned that specialized knowledge and having the PhD and with you, you knew at an early age, what you wanted to do, 
you studied art history, you, you went to grad school, you were an assistant curator, but you know, this is a very difficult field to break into. So one, congrats on all that you've done. You were over 35,000 photographs, I think, by at least 4,000 artists. So that, that's amazing. Can you just talk about kind of the, the steps needed I know your steps, but just talk about the steps needed to take to be a curator. And then you mentioned right. a PhD, but also as being a professor, is that part of it also? And, and just what your recommendations are? Sure. I guess, you know, one has to begin with, with a real kind of curiosity and love of art. Otherwise, there's no reason to, right. to, pers to pursue the long path. I think certainly getting some kind of museum experience early on mm. is important. And um, there are internships that most museums offer. They're pretty competitive and there are opportunities to volunteer, but we really try more and more to make sure that our internships are paid internships so that they're available to a wide range of people and not just those who can you know, afford to take the summer off or something. So trying to get some actual experience in the museum for two reasons. One is just so you know how things work, so that you begin to make a network of mentors and peers, but also just to make sure that it is something you're really interested in, that you know you might imagine that it's a career that sounds really exciting, and then you might find that it's, it's really not what you want to do day after day. <laughs> Hard as it is for me to imagine such a thing. Um, <laughs> so that early experience in a museum, and of course, college courses in art history. And I think that's also an opportunity. I mean, most uh, colleges and universities have some type of art museum or art gallery that's associated with them. And so that's a way often to get real experience, not just doing the sort of thing you might do as an intern in a major museum, but at college, you might have the opportunity to curate or work with other students to curate an exhibition, to take it through all those steps, to come up with the idea, to pick the works, to work with somebody to get the pieces matted and framed, to figure out how they lay out in the gallery, to write the labels. And so even though it might be on a smaller scale, or it might not be, that takes you through the whole process. You really feel the steps. And, and I remember doing that as a, as a senior in college. We worked on a, an exhibition that was about the architectural designs for the college, you know, so it's not what I eventually went into, but we had that experience of working together and picking the, the actual pieces and figuring out how to present them. And I think the other thing is there are jobs, there are curatorial jobs that don't require the PhD. I think if you want to become a curator in a major art museum, you need the PhD. But for instance, you might start even as an art handler in <laughs> In, in the museum or a lot of people who end up in photography departments had a passion for photography themselves were photographers well we also have photographers at the museum who are photographing the works of art um, there, there are different ways to get into the museum and there are jobs our collection cataloger our curatorial assistant both have master's degrees but not phds right. so there are ways to get in and to build up that experience. And, you know, I think doing the PhD is a sort of major commitment of time and energy. And I think you have to want that experience and not just want the degree. In other words, to spend seven or eight years of your life doing something just to get the credentials to do something else you think you would enjoy, that, that seems like a big trade-off to me. Um, so like in my case, when I went to grad school, I, I really wanted to be in grad school. I, I missed going to class. I missed that kind of research. I wanted to have that academic experience. I wasn't just doing it in order to get the degree I needed in order to be a curator. Right. So. And now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Oh, I would have thought it was obvious by now. <laughs> it <laughs> I is. I mean, I, mean I, 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 love, I, I love the contact with the actual art. I love, discover, mm. I love discovering things for myself, and I love sharing those discoveries. So mm. when there's a new artist that I haven't heard of, whether it's a contemporary artist right now, a young photographer who's just emerging, or it's a 19th century photographer I never heard of, mm that sense of excitement continues to thrill me. Yeah. And then the ability to share that and to help other people have that sense of discovery. Is, yeah. Is, so it's it, both sides of that. Okay. So all the work that I do, you know, if I'm doing an exhibition, it's not so that I can look at it. It's right. So that other people can find things that they never knew existed, can yeah. see a type of photograph that they never imagined, that sort of thing. Yeah. 
and you walk by and hear people talking about it and it just kind of sparks something in you when you're I, I do try to eavesdrop sometimes <laughs> in the galleries. Uh, always curious. I mean, there's a, there's a, a picture that we love that we acquired recently. It's rather atypical. It's the monkey selfie. Mm. Um, so there's a photographer named David Slater, who's a kind of nature photographer. And he was visiting a reserve for macaque monkeys. And he noticed that the monkeys made sounds sort of like the shutter of his camera. Mm. That kind of thing. And yeah. they seemed to get a little excited by the sound of the shutter clicking. And he set up his camera on a tripod and then stepped back and he let the monkeys begin to play with it. And soon they discovered that they could hit the little shutter release and it would make that sound. And there's one where he's sort of looking probably at his own reflection in the lens. And it's just this incredible smiling macaque monkey mm. is great and it went viral you know on the internet and became a kind of interesting case because david slater saw that it was on wikipedia like on the entry for macaque monkeys or something and he he contacted them to say i'm sorry you haven't right you know, you, i have the copyright to it and you they said like no you didn't take the picture you don't have the copyright to it and he said like no he does have the copyright so this became a court case that PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals joined and they were suing for the monkey to have the copyright the because monkey the monkey took the picture, took the picture. Yeah. and it, it went to court and eventually it was decided that animals could not hold copyright <laughs> and PETA's interest in it was to establish kind of human rights for animals it wasn't really about the copyright of this right. picture there and it was settled and david slater continues to have the the copyright but he also agreed that i think 25 percent of the profits of the picture go back to support the That's great. nature preserve but it's a great picture uh, he had never sold it to a museum it's, we can't talk about artistic intent or anything like mm. that in this case but it does something that we want art to do it like it yeah. makes us smile. It, it's totally engaging. And it's the picture that people always gravitate to. If it's on a wall, like everybody immediately gravitates to it. They're taking selfies of themselves with the mm -hmm. monkey selfie. And so it's just interesting to watch what makes people stop. Yeah. That history of photography installation that I spoke about changed every four or six months. And it was in a hallway that people walked down. It was always interesting to just watch people walk down and then what did they stop at mm. and sort of read the label and look at the picture and then continue on their way. The monkey selfie was one, but there are other photographs too that just stop people in their tracks. And, and that, that's interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm going to check that one out. Now, what challenges are there for you? What kind of obstacles or challenges are there? Time, space, and money. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, there's never enough time. There's never enough money. There's right. Never enough space. And, and you know, yeah. we, in everything we do, we work within limits in all aspects of life. And in the museum, it's the same thing. There's only so much wall space. There's only so much storage space. There's only so much money to buy pictures with. So, right. so much time to do the work in. And particularly with photography, more than other media, I think there are billions of photographs made right. every day. So. Got to choose wisely. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then do you have a most memorable moment? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I've been doing this for uh, 30 years. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, they're just, they're many great experiences. Or any, anyone that sticks out, any one of those great experiences that really sticks out? So I think... Um, it's always exciting when an exhibition that you've worked on for a period of time opens and, mm. you know, the doors open and people come in and you're watching how people react to the, to the photographs, what, what they stop at, what they read. Um, and for me, it's always rewarding. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, it certainly was exciting for me when I opened this exhibition of photographs by Paul Deuce, who I wrote mm. my doctoral dissertation on. But, uh, but that was a long time ago. And yeah. um, I don't know, I, I, get, I get excited about new acquisitions. Yeah. You know, the, the, the picture I described of the, the family um, in Georgia yeah. uh, taken in 1866. I mean, when we got that was exciting. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most exciting experiences 
is about to happen and that's when we open our new right. our new building here and we'll have photography galleries for the first time and we'll have galleries where photographs are in dialogue with painting and sculpture and video and mm -hmm. um, you know design objects and prints of drawings all, all all different media in dialogue with one another on certain themes yeah okay well i we're at the end of this interview. I want to ask some quick hitter questions to you for fun. So okay. people to get to know you a little bit better. But before we do that, I want to see if you can just talk about the museum right now, what's going on in the exhibits, and uh, also if there's anything else additional that you want to talk about. Sure. As I said, it's an exciting moment for the museum. And the museum is open to the public right now. And it's actually a wonderful time to visit because we limit how many people can come at any time. It's easy to be socially distant in the galleries. The galleries are big and it's a chance to see amazing exhibitions and permanent collections uh, with fewer people than normal in our galleries. So that's great for the public. We wish there were more people in the galleries and there will be again. Yeah. Right now we have an exhibition called uh, Through an African Lens, uh, Sub-Saharan Photographs from the Museum's Collection. That's up through November 8th. Mm. And that's uh, photographs from about the last 50 years by artists from 20 different countries in Africa. Oh. And what else did you ask me? Oh, is there anything else additional that you wanted to oh. discuss? Um, no. Okay. We're good. All right. So let's get to these quick hitter questions. Okay. First question. What's your favorite sports team? Oh, Astros, of course. All right. <laughs> favorite movie or show? Um, movie, it sounds silly, but I love Groundhog Day. Yeah, classic. <laughs> Favorite musical artist or group? Oh, um, I'll, I'll just date myself if I answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to answer that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. And favorite food or drink? Um, uh, love artichokes. Mm, okay. All right. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, hey, Malcolm, this has been great. Learned so much from this. And also, I just really love your passion for art in general, for photography. And it's great what you're doing. So well, thank, thank you, you so much for the invitation to be here and to speak about what I do. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you for coming on to the show. And all right. Okay. Talk to you later. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. To explore the photography collection of the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston, to learn about current exhibitions, or to find out about internship possibilities, visit www.mfah.org. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.